Our gracious Father in heaven, we are thankful of a day that thou has given us, but this day in particular is important, as it is a day that we, we commemorate the rising from the dead of thy Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior, who has given each of us the hope of eternal life and has demonstrated that hope in his submission to thy will through the death and the cross, as we've already heard this past Friday. And so, Father, we pray that thou would open thy word to us this morning, not just to us, Lord. We can imagine that thy word is being proclaimed across the face of this earth. And though there's great resistance and more and more growth and opposition towards thy word, we pray that there would be more valor and courage to continue to proclaim this truth. But today, Father, this truth is so important. We ask, Father, that thy word may be made clear to all those that are present today. This we ask of thee in Jesus' name. Amen. With the Lord's help, I'd like to read from the 8th chapter in the book of Romans. The letter to the Romans, chapter 8. I realize this is not our typical customer, customary search or scripture that we read in, in the resurrection, but I feel led by the Spirit to, to speak on this chapter. Chapter 8, beginning with verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh." that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live after the flesh. For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the spirit do mortify the deeds of the flesh of the body, ye shall live. 
For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to, compare, to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who had subjected the same in hope. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit, the redemption of our body. For we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? But if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. I have read through verse 25. Let us kneel down and worship. <coughs> Jesus Christ is risen from the grave to the glory of God the Father. He suffered and died for our offenses and is risen again for our justification. And this message is entrusted to us that we may continue to proclaim it, not only in word, but in a new life. And this new life is being offered to everyone that is also gathered here and has not yet availed himself of it. O oh, Father, Reveal thy good and holy will to each individual as thy word is proclaimed. As the word goes forth, anoint the brother to speak it in simplicity and in truth, dear Father, and that the word may accomplish that for which thou hast sent it, O Lord. For it is not thy will that anyone should perish, but that all should come to the realization of the truth and be saved. In this sophisticated world where we live, where more and more Opposition is to thy truth, O Lord, where it is being put aside and sin is going rampant as it was in the time of Noah. O Lord, make everyone realize, O Lord, that there is a great purpose for us being here on this earth, that we may make use of it, O Lord, ask ourselves why we are here, and that thou wilt give us the answer, O Lord. Do thou look in favor upon us as we are gathered here, and in other places as well, even those that are here and there, O Lord, lonely and cannot gather, be thou with them, uphold them, dear Father. Thy arm is not shortened, thou art able to save to the uttermost, to uphold, to encourage, O Lord. Thou art a mighty God, 
but O Lord, thou wilt not force thy salvation upon anyone, and we have to desire it. Convict us through thy word, that we may choose wisely. O Father, be also with those that are sick and suffering and cannot come, O Lord. We are mindful of a few even in our midst. Dear Father, in the mercy deal thou with them. We thank thee for answered prayers concerning Kara Freeman, O Lord, who has gone through much suffering, O Lord. Do thou provide and bless the hands that minister unto her need, dear Father. May thy witness go forth in this world as it is entrusted unto us to be thy witnesses, O Lord, that men may choose, may choose light, may choose salvation, and not go under with this world which is condemned already. There was no need for the world to be condemned by the coming of thy beloved Son, for it was condemned, but he came to save, to save those that want to be saved. Bless us, bless the gathering, O Lord, bless the Holy Word. We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. There is now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. This verse here is very exclusive. It tells us that condemnation exists outside of Christ and no condemnation exists inside Christ. And only those who are in Christ Jesus are no longer under this condemnation. It's a very powerful statement and it's a statement that creates a lot of problems with a lot of people. If we were to look at this statement, in fact, we ask ourselves the question, why Apostle Paul, who wrote the letter to the Romans, would now begin this section of his letter after he wrote the previous chapter with this, therefore, this idea that when we put everything into its proper context, when we're able to have a clear picture of God's will and his message, we can then conclude that therefore there is now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. But to get to that point, to get to that point in our minds and in our hearts where we can understand what condemnation is, why there was a need to deal with it, and how God was going to deal with it, and why if we avail ourselves of what God offers as the remedy, as the, the way of escape, we can find a, a, a state in our hearts and in our minds of no condemnation. The world 
and we are part of the world. You and I have, uh, until we came to know Jesus Christ, for those of us who have embraced Jesus Christ and have accepted him, until we got to that point, we, in our own minds, had to deal with what we understood to be true. The Bible tells us that that God has revealed himself. He's, he has made himself known to mankind. One way or another, whether it's through, through us looking at nature and creation and discovering the, the incredible beauty and intricacy of design, that we see in nature, and drawing some conclusions about what is behind that observation. Or whether we've had experiences, we've had brushed with death in our own lives, and we've, we've come in that moment where we, have, we were, where we felt the greatest need to be rescued, we felt the presence of something beyond ourselves. We felt the, the presence or the possibility of the existence of something beyond the physical, meaning the spiritual. And it doesn't really matter what it is in our past that brought us to a conscious belief, even if it was temporary, of something greater than ourselves, of something that we would define as spiritual, We had to deal with that. And that experience that we had, we take with us as we move on in life. The Bible tells us in Romans that God, that that which may be known of God is manifest in them, is manifest, is made clear and revealed to, to mankind. For God had showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him, meaning God, from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even as eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Man, regardless of how we want to uh, dismiss it, God has in his ways spoken to each of us individually to the point that if I was able to look into your heart and to dissect all your experiences and your thoughts and be able to go back in timeline, in your timeline of life, I would be able to find at least one, at least one situation in your life where you had a close encounter with what you believed in your heart and mind. And that's important, with what you believed in your heart and mind to be God or his Godhead or or the heavenly, something that personifies God. God has revealed that, and it's a mystery. The Bible tells us that he lights, he lighteth, he gives understanding to all men that come into the world, give an understanding of who he is. And it is a mystery. It is a mystery. That understanding has a drawback. That understanding, that encounter with God has one side effect, if you will, and that is that it makes mankind all of a sudden accountable 
accountable to God because of the experience, because of the little bit of understanding of his existence. And God wanted mankind to know of his existence. God wanted mankind to know that there was much more than himself. And the Bible tells us that God placed in man this moral compass. He placed in man an understanding. Even though the Bible tells us that from the time that our, our, our parents, Adam and Eve, if you will accept that, our parents, Adam and Eve, from the time that they sinned, from that very instant that sin was found in their hearts and, and had its action in their disobedience to God's will, that their understanding was darkened. Their, their full understanding was, was now twisted or a little bit warped. It was a little bit off, off axis. And they lost the true and complete perspective of God. And God knew that. God knew that. And God knew that if, if man was left without any kind of compass to guide him in his physical experience, now that his understanding of God was twisted, it had become darkened and polluted by sin, God left in man the moral compass, which is the conscience. The conscience, which allowed Adam and Eve to realize all of a sudden that they were naked. And they had uh, identified the attribute of shame, probably a word that they have never experienced before, or a sensation that they had never experienced before. And later on, they had to uh, attribute a word. They had to come up with an expression to, to, to be able to share the feeling of shame because it was not in their vocabulary during the time that they walked closely with God in the garden. And so God gave them a conscience that they would know good and bad, good and evil. And that conscience was there to, the Bible says, either excusing or accusing them of what they did with their body. And this conscience... This moral compass that throughout the history of man has become a bothersome reality for him. And man has looked to, to dismiss this conscience or dismiss the effect of the conscience because the conscience doesn't help us. When, and that's why you see that there are those who will throw themselves, literally throw themselves at humanitarian work and, and there is a little bit of a high, if you will, when you do something good towards your fellow man, when you act in a sacrificial manner and you, you give of yourself inexplicably without any, any return on your work in order to help someone in need, there is a, an incredible feeling of good. And some people need that. And some people experience that, and they do so in order to perhaps quench, perhaps uh, bring down the conscience where there may be something in their past, or there may be a nagging feeling, or whatever it may be. But people, when they do good, there is a natural reaction that you feel good. And God placed that in us, that when we do good and choose to do good, our conscience tells us, that this was good. It defines for us 
what is good. Likewise, when we do what's wrong, when we do what's wrong in the eyes of God, our conscience tells us that this is wrong. And we feel condemned. The word condemnation is a very strong expression of disapproval. And that's precisely what the conscience does. It expresses the strong disapproval for what we have done when we do wrong, when we do evil, when we do what's bad in God's sight. And man, in his, in his ingenuity, has worked really hard to try to get rid of this uh, inherent and intrinsic mechanism of condemnation that God gave us. And, and you can, a man can meditate. He can try to meditate his way out of a sense of guilt. He can create religion and philosophy to dismiss away the definitions of right and wrong that religion has defined for him over history and has made life miserable for him. And, and man, I mean, we do not underestimate man. Man has worked really hard to extricate himself, to remove himself from the effect of the conscience. And the most powerful way to do this is to dull the conscience, is to condition the conscience from a very early age in life. And God knew that. God knew, and that's why the law came. The Bible tells us the law came, that sin would be exceedingly sinful. The law came, the, the, the law of Moses came to tell man, this is, unless you have any doubts, or should you have been raised in an environment where your conscience has been conditioned, and you may use as as an excuse to justify your actions. No, no. The law makes it clear this is sin, and this overrides and supersedes anything that you may have been conditioned with in your upbringing. This is sin. This is coming short of God's expectation. This is crossing the line as far as God is concerned. And it makes and it defines for you what is sin. It makes sin exceedingly sinful. The law is not your friend. And the law, in many ways, was God's way of conditioning our minds, lest we would find ways to dull our conscience. But the Bible tells us here, it says in verse 3, For what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, because the law doesn't save, the law offers no hope. It only tells you you're a sinner. It tells you you're an exceeding sinner. And it offers no way out. And the Bible brought in this idea through the Old Testament, through the law, that you can atone for your sins. You can make yourself one with God, be at peace with God through this mode, this modality, what we define as sacrifices. Man and Adam sacrificed his, his Abel and Cain sacrificed. Now, who taught Abel and Cain to sacrifice? It doesn't tell us there, but they brought an offering to the Lord. It was a natural reaction once they had known who God was. There was a need, 
an expression of the soul to come to God and to offer something that God would accept in order to make our relationship with him right. And God used sacrifices, and he made it very clear that the sacrifice for sin always required the shedding of blood. Without the shedding of blood, there was no forgiveness for sin. God could not cover over our sins. And that was a foreshadow, a forward looking into what God would provide for us, which would be the best sacrifice. And that has never changed. It is a means in which man, and you see this over and over again, and we, we may not see physical sacrifices in temples today, or you do actually in some religions, they do offer food offerings in, in their little idol temples, but man finds ways, whether it's through humanitarian work, whether it's going out and doing something good, man looks to express himself in a way that will make him feel good. And one of that, one of that, one of those ways is this idea of sacrifices. So the law was weak. Law offered no escape, offered no, remor- no recourse for your sin other than you were a sinner. Um, it did offer the sacrifice to, to enable you for that moment to be right with God. But it didn't give you the strength. And the Bible tells us that without no uncertain terms in Hebrews that, that the law was incapable of maintaining that conscience. It says here, For the law having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered because that the worshippers once purged should have had no more conscience of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offerings thou wouldst not, but a body hast thou prepared me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast had no pleasure. Then said I, Lo, I come, in the volume of the book it is written of me, to do thy will, O God. Above, when he said, Sacrifice and offerings and burnt offerings, an offering for sin thou wouldst not, neither hadst pleasure therein, which are offered by the law. Then he said, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. In Romans 8, verse 3 says, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, Condemned sin in the flesh. Condemned sin in the flesh. Man has tried to deal with the notion of condemnation. It doesn't take very much to find out, even when you speak with someone who, in in all appearance, seems to have everything together in their lives. 
But when you approach the topic of religion, and more specifically, when you approach the topic of Jesus Christ, his death on the cross, and the, the need for that death to deliver man from sin, then all of a sudden it's interesting how much of a response you receive. Sometimes the person whose life may seem to be so altogether, all of a sudden responds in a very antagonistic way, in a very surprising way, when you bring up religion, when you bring up the cross, when you bring up Jesus Christ. It's almost as if they themselves in their own personal lives have had an experience and have come to a conclusion and have retained that feeling, that expression, that emotion, maybe of antagonism towards the cross, towards the message of Jesus Christ, for whatever reason. And so when what appears in the world to be someone who is indifferent to God, someone who who has their life together and they don't have a need for God, if we were to probe deeper, which God does and his spirit does, if we were to probe deeper, we would find that, in fact, they have a very, very well-defined opinion about God. And part of that opinion, part of that opinion, at least in my experience in discussions with people, is this idea of condemnation. This idea that, that who has the right to condemn? And why should I feel condemned? The Bible speaks to us in different scriptures. I want to read you a few verses. I want to read from Titus chapter 3. This is Apostle Paul speaking to Titus, and he says in verse 10, a man that is a heretic, one that causes divisions, as in this particular context, a man that is a heretic after the first and second admonition, reject. Knowing that he that is such is subverted and sinneth, being condemned of himself. So I want you to pay special attention to this. Knowing that he that is such is subverted. Now, the word subverted there means to have turned away, turned away from the truth, um, whose mind is, in, in, in different languages, they use the word perverted. It also means to be turned sort of inside out as if being twisted. So it gives the impression that, that the person has a twisted perception, a twisted mind, and in doing so has turned away from the truth and sins. And being condemned of himself means that his own, he is conscious, he is conscious of his own sins. And it has no effect. It has no effect. He is condemned by his own actions, knowingly, and it has no effect. First Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. 
speaking lies and hypocrisy. Now, the word lies there is actually it's a very interesting word. In Greek, it's pseudologos, which makes all the sense. Logos meaning word, pseudo, pseudo word. That's a good way of describing lies. But the lies are spoken in hypocrisy, meaning that they're insincere. And what that means is that the person actually knows that they are speaking a lie. The person is intentionally and deliberately speaking a lie. And it says here how this is possible. It is possible to knowingly and deliberately speak a lie because your conscience is seared as if seared with a hot iron. And in Spanish, the word that's used in this scripture is to be cauterized. That's exactly the word used in Spanish. Your, your, your conscience is cauterized so that it doesn't feel. It doesn't feel. And this is further corroborated in Ephesians. I want to read one last verse here. Ephesians 4, chapter, verse 19. Um, Having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of the heart, who, being past feeling, have given themselves over to lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. The expression here, who, being past feeling, and, and in, I don't know what it, would, what it says in the German Bible, but in English, this is the same idea. And it, it basically uses, in the Spanish, I should say, it's basically saying that, that they no longer feel with their conscience. That they no longer feel with their conscience. So you have someone who is able to, to do sin, who is, not, uh, who is conscious of his sin, but feels no condemnation, although his sin condemns him. And he's able to do that because his conscience, his conscience no longer has feeling. And the Bible tells us that this is a sad state to be in. If we were to go back to Romans, we would see here that the Bible talks about it for that because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Wherefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness, to the lust of their own hearts, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. And then he goes on to say that these are those without understanding, covenant breakers without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, who, knowing the judgment of God, having a a conscious understanding of God's judgment, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. When the conscience, when man tries really hard to free himself from this nagging feeling of condemnation, the end result, and this is the tragedy, what kind of man is the end result? It, and this tells us that, that in the absence of God, if man tries to redefine truth, and tries to redefine good and evil, the end result is, is terrible. 
It is a man void of a conscience. It is a man who feels. It is a man or a woman. It is a human being who is void of being able to feel with his conscience. And that is a, that is a tragedy, a seriousness. I want to read a scripture from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. This is in reference to the coming of the Antichrist. But there's an important point here. And then shall the wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth, and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan, with all power and signs and lying wonders. And with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they received not the love of the truth, that they might be saved. They received not the love of the truth. Now the word love and the word truth, both of them in this context, are nouns. And I want you to think this for a minute. Think about this for a minute. The word love and truth are inseparable. They're inseparable. They go together. When you reject truth, you reject love. And that's what the Bible's telling us. That when man rejects truth, he rejects love. Because the two are inseparable. They're part of Part of what God created when he defined for mankind what is truth. So that we, in our, in our limited ability, could understand that. When we look at the cross, we see God dealing with sin. We see God dealing with the disease, the condemned man, that prevailed throughout humanity for which there was no way to uh, free yourself from. Man tries to externally remove himself from the condemnation that comes with sin. He tries through his own ingenuity, through his own inventions, to try to free himself from that state of condemnation, but he cannot do that. Even when he tries to free himself, the Bible tells us here that that, that we are, that this is inside us. This nature of sin is inside us. You can't deal with it from external means. You can't deal with it by some kind of external operation. You can't extricate yourself. You can't remove yourself from the state of sinfulness. There's nothing man can do. And in his attempt to free himself from the conscience, from the guiltiness of sin, he only creates a worst creature, a man void of conscience. So the only solution, the only solution, as it says here, is for God to extricate man. It says here, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free, has extricated me 
from the law of sin and death. The law of sin and death is what governs man, whether he likes it or not. And in his best attempts, he can't free himself from the law of sin and death. He only makes it worse. He only confirms the law of sin and death. He only gets to the extreme case of what sin brings you to if you let it take its full course in your life. And so the only way to remove yourself from that situation is to allow God to do the extrication. God has to do the removal. God has to do the operation. God has to deal with the state of the heart of man. God has to do that. And he does that through truth and love. Truth that you're a sinner. Truth that you're condemned. You're right. Your conscience is true. It is, it is in parallel and in agreement with the spirit. And it is in agreement with the law. But you can't deal with it yourself. The only way you can deal with it is coming to the cross. And God dealt with truth and love in the cross. On the cross. God's love for us in our pitiful state, in our condition of sinfulness, without hope, without hope. He dealt with that on the cross. He showed his love for a, a, a despicable, hopeless humanity by bringing the only possible remedy and sacrifice on the cross. Truth and love were on the cross. And God... God then condemned sin in the flesh on the cross. God expressed his great disapproval of sin, judged it forevermore. And that's why in Hebrew it says that when that sacrifice was done, and we believe on that sacrifice on the cross, once for all, there is nothing more needed. It was sufficient to extricate, extricate us from this condition of sin. And it is the Spirit. We can read in, he, in the Bible says in chapter 6 of Romans, Likewise reckon, consider yourself also to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not therefore, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that you should obey in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of, of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you. For ye are not under the law, but under grace. Sin shall not have dominion over you. And we read here For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the spirit the things of the spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind, the mind of flesh, the unregenerated mind, is enmity against God, is hostile towards God. Our unregenerated mind, prior to coming to full submission to God, our mind is naturally hostile to God's will. 
and it is not subject, it doesn't make itself subjected to the law of God, and neither can it be. So they that are in the flesh cannot please God. But ye are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if so be that the spirit of God dwell in you. Now if any man have not the spirit of Christ, he is not of his. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, because it has been judged, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus, and this is today, but if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken or make alive your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. You believe you are justified by faith, but the Spirit is given to make alive your mortal body so that sin no longer has dominion over you. You need to dwell in the Spirit, and the Spirit of God has to be in you. You can only live out the Christian life if the Spirit is in you. And it will quicken you. It will awaken you and enliven you to this spiritual life with victory over sin. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh. For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. I want to read the last portion that we read here. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption, to wit, the redemption of our body. For we are safe by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? But if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. We are ourselves the first fruits of the Spirit. We have the first fruits of the Spirit. In James, we are, we are told that we are a kind of first fruits of Christ. And in the Old Testament, the first fruits were given to God, and it was, first, it was a demonstration of your willingness to show your appreciation for God's blessings in your harvest. It was part of your obedience to the commandment. But it also was implicitly a show of your faith. Because you don't know what, a, what, a, what kind of harvest you're going to have afterwards. And if you give the first part of your harvest, not knowing whether you're going, the harvest is going to continue to be bountiful, you're making a statement to God that you are trusting him implicitly, that you are hopeful. That, that expression of giving your first fruits as a sacrifice to God was an expression of your faith in his benevolence, that he was going to be hopeful. Christ is the first fruit. 
He is like the first fruit. He is the forerunner. He is the one who resurrected. And he's giving us his assurance that, that he is also going to resurrect us. That this life that we live is temporary. And that we hope for that, that, that our redemption, our adoption will be fulfilled. That God will fulfill his promise that he will resurrect us and that we will be together with him. We hope for that. We live out our lives with that expectation. We live out our lives as first fruits because we don't know what tomorrow brings, but we trust him that he will fulfill that promise. The Christian life is altogether bounded by this concept of hope. In fact, if you look at the world, so many themes, whether they're in novels, whether they're in movies, whether they're in whatever they are, this idea of hope, man without hope, is a man in despair. And God offers the only true hope. He offers that hope, and he has given us the, the assurance the down payment as a promissory note that he's going to fulfill his promise. Jesus Christ was the, kind, was the first fruits of that resurrection to come, of the harvest of those who will be resurrected like him. And we are followers of that, and we have that hope in us. But we cannot have that hope without the Spirit. The resurrection of Jesus Christ made it possible for us to dwell in hope. It made it possible for us to live a victorious life over sin. It made it possible for us to conquer the conscience. Not that we would have a a cauterized conscience, but rather that our conscience would become sharpened by the Spirit because we have received forgiveness. There is no, therefore now no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. And we believe that, and we live it, because Christ resurrected. We believe that we're going to follow in his footsteps, and we have that same hope. And the Bible says here, but if we hope for that we see not, we don't see it, only with spiritual eyes. Then do we with patience wait for it. And the Bible says that we have need of patience, for after we have done the will of God, we, may, we will receive the promise.
Let us bow in prayer. Father, we bow before thee, and we thank thee for this, thy son. And we're reminded, O Heavenly Father, as we've heard the message this morning of the two malefactors who were hung upon the cross, and one mocked Jesus Christ, yet the other rebuked him and said, Don't you fear God? Don't you realize that we deserve the condemnation that's come upon us? And then he turned and he looked to Jesus Christ. And he said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus Christ at that moment that moment of death turned to him and said, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. And so it can be with each one of us. If we recognize the sin that we have, we recognize the condemnation of the sin that we have. And we turn to Jesus Christ, the only way, the truth, the light, and ask him to forgive us and ask him for the victory that can be us only through the cross. And so, Today, O Heavenly Father, we lift thee up. We glorify thee. And we thank thee. That you recognize in that moment, in those times, that you needed to take sin and for the Father to turn from you and for you to cry unto him, Why, O Father, have you forsaken me when you had to turn from the sin that you carried for us and that you gave your life for each one? And, O Heavenly Father, might everyone in this room recognize what that means to each one of us, that you did carry the sins of each one the sins that we were condemned with and that we would face eternal damnation for. Oh, Heavenly Father, we're thankful. We're thankful that you accepted and said, here am I, take me. Because in innocent, in my innocent blood, you covered all the sins of man. And we're thankful, Heavenly Father, We cannot thank thee enough for taking the step and having such a perfect plan committed for mankind. Why? Because you loved us so greatly. 
Might we all, oh Heavenly Father, love each other. Might we walk with that in mind each and every day. And might we lift thee up. Might we, for, might we forsake the sin that so easily besets us. And might we look to you, O Holy Father, for thy grace and the mercy that you have given us unto us and that we, we can take each and every day. And might we, O Heavenly Father, tell others, tell others of the victory that you have given through thy Son, Jesus Christ, that indeed, O Heavenly Father, that they might too have life and life more abundantly. O Heavenly Father, we're thankful for this church, that in, in this church the truth may be found, that indeed, O Heavenly Father, that each would walk according to thy will and to thy way. That indeed, O Heavenly Father, the light might be shone unto those around us who need it so. And for this, we give thee thanks. O Heavenly Father, we encourage them. We ask thee, O Lord, to give them courage in times of difficulty, in times of stress, that indeed, O Heavenly Father, thy will might continue to be done. And that, O Heavenly Father, when you do return, you shall find a faithful flock, a faithful flock to thee, who lives and works and prays to thee, the Father, that others might see and others might know that thou art here amongst us. In Jesus' name we thank thee. And pray. Amen.